Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and I'm happy to be back with our episode tonight. Uh, we've got a preparedness episode ahead of us with a couple of um, topics that we're going to touch on. Uh, before we get to that, though, we've got to bring in my co-host, Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. Hey there. Well, as it tends to be in Colorado, it's overcast and looking like it's going to rain, but it really does. Uh, it, <laughs> I never know what to think about that, but we're going to kind of talk about that. Uh, however, we're going to start with that flooding that occurred in rural Virginia that took out about 100 homes, and it had six inches of rain in just a couple hours. And so it really made a mess. They were originally missing 44 people, but fortunately they found all of them, and there were no fatalities. What happened there, Dan, to Podwin? Oh, man, it's always a struggle to get to the mute button the first time, apparently. Anyway, good evening, <laughs> Sam. And uh, it was really a uh, pretty uh Interesting and active day of weather in the mid-Atlantic on Tuesday. As you mentioned, we had that significant flood event in parts of western Virginia. And also, I believe, the same, a, a, a thunderstorm further southwest in Tennessee. Also, no fatalities there, which was great news. And also, everyone in Virginia has been found and accounted for, which is excellent. But they got about, um, I believe, about four, three, four inches of rain um, in just a couple of hours. And anytime you get a lot of rain anywhere, you know, an inch or two even is is enough in some of these um, mountainous areas where you have a lot of complex terrain and the water runs off really quickly. And if it comes down at a fast enough rate, you get a lot of uh, water funneling and channeling into um, pretty shallow stream beds, and that can quickly cause flash flooding. And it's uh, it looks like the flooding was pretty significant with uh, numerous homes destroyed and businesses destroyed, um, and uh, there were. Uh, it looks like about 100 homes were uh, damaged as a result of the floods, and there was a lot of water moving quickly that caused uh, a lot of damage. Unfortunately, it looks like everyone's been accounted for. Well, we'll get back to the weather, but Jamie, you're most familiar with rural environments. What, what makes it worse when something like that happens in a rural environment? Well, one of the things is just, um, you know, people are spread out, so the, the responders have farther to go to get to anyone for rescue. Um, the infrastructure is not as developed, um, so roads are narrower, less uh, shoulder room to, to operate on. Uh, drainage in situations like that can wash out roads a little easier um, because they're narrower and less, um, less built up. Um, all those things can, can really um, impact the, the ability of responders to get to where they're going. And then, of course, as people are spread out and have multiple situations across a broader area, um, and there's less responders to go around in rural areas too. So it's just a it's just a compounding nature when a community like that gets hit. And of course, something like this, you're going to have a real hard time getting to anyone. That's why it took them a few days just to look for people. I imagine um, some search and rescue effort. Uh, Becky, you had mentioned some other weather event this week. Uh, well, I, yeah, I toss it back to Dan, actually. he was It was all sort of connected, um, but the Mid-Atlantic and D.C. area especially had a pretty significant wind event. Um, if you look at the Storm Prediction Center reports for Tuesday, July 12th, they had, um, I guess, yeah, unfiltered reports is 528, filtered is uh, 289, um, you know, all across the eastern seaboard into New England. So 
just a really, really stormy, stormy day um, for that part of the country. A lot of downed trees, a lot of power outages for a while across a lot of Maryland and uh, northern Virginia. So I guess. Yeah, there, there the, are people here in my area that just got power back tonight. It's Thursday night, so that's two days later. Um, they were yeah, what was power. your experience, Jamie? Uh, it was windy as heck, but, you know, it was really just like a bad thunderstorm and, okay. you know, lots of heavy rain. Um, but, you know. The, the power flickered a couple of times. We're really close to um, Conowingo Power um, Hydroelectric Plant. So it, it, unless it takes out something between us and the dam, um, we usually are pretty secure and not having power outages at our house. But, you know, down the road from us a mile past us, it, you know, people started losing power because trees were coming down and hitting the lines. So it's just we're just happen to be lucky enough to be in a more secure area um, as far as power lines go, I guess, um, we're just, I'll take it and whatever. Cause I just know that lots of people in our community have been without power for a couple of days. So, so do you have a generator, Jamie? No, I don't. Um, I honestly, the worst power outage we had was hurricane Floyd, which was right after we moved in about 23 years ago. Um, and power was out for four days. Um, but ever since then, the worst power outage we've had has been maybe three or four hours. So um, they, they just for whatever reason, the infrastructure between us and, and the power generation is secure enough not to be taken out too easily. I think they whatever they did since that hurricane fixed it. Well, that's good to know. Uh, Dan, you made some comments in the sidebar there. You want to talk about those? Yeah, Sam, the uh, the storms on Tuesday there in the D.C. area at the peak uh, right after they went through, there was, I think, it was certainly over 100,000 customers. It might have been close to 150,000 customers were without power in the region. So certainly a pretty pretty nasty event uh, over a pretty populated area with a lot of trees, too. Um, and that's when you really worry about the power outages. And there were some wind gusts over 80 miles an hour. So it wasn't um, only 50, 55 miles an hour, which is certainly uh, can cause some problems, but there were uh, – numerous gusts over 65 and 70, which is when you really start to have have issues. And you know, this is not uncommon in the summer, but uh, certainly uh, a a reason to, to, to stay weather aware in the afternoons, especially in the summer, uh, to be alert for, for warnings. And not just for severe thunderstorms, but obviously lightning. Uh, there's been a handful of lightning deaths this year. Unfortunately, I think we're up to three or four um, so it's, it's certainly just a reminder during the summer months, especially to pay attention to the weather. And even if it's not, uh, raining where you are, you still could be, uh, at risk from, uh, uh, lightning. So that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things that we wanted to talk about a bit. Um, I was watching something, oh, the history channel this morning, and it was talking about these swamp people that go out and, and catch alligators and, a couple of them got caught in a really bad storm. And one of them said something about, I can feel the lightning. Can you feel the lightning, Dan? Yeah, he's pointing at me. Oh, yes, you absolutely can feel the lightning. There have been many, many reports of people, um, you know, hikers who are out on top of a mountain. And, you know, that they say that a lightning strikes near them or a tree nearby, like the hair on your arms will stand straight up. There's been uh, video and pictures of, actual like hair on top of people's heads standing up from the electricity you would absolutely feel lightning um when it's close by and if you are feeling that you need to get the heck out of there 
So what do you do, Bex? <laughs> well, I, if, I, the first thing is to be monitoring the weather. Um, and usually, you know, outdoor folks, hikers are pretty good at it's getting started early and making sure you are, you know, away from high ground before storms get going. Um, but if you do happen to find yourself caught out and about, um, do not go stand under a tree. That is not a safe place to be. Lightning tends to be attracted to the tallest thing around. So if you are underneath the tallest thing around, you are at risk of being struck from, uh, by lightning. Um, if or, you can't get to any kind of safe structure, a vehicle, a building, anything like that, um, you should crouch down as close to the ground as possible. Um, put your, you know, your head between your your arms and make basically make yourself a very, very small object on the ground that the lightning will not be attracted to. Well, you're reminding me of a situation that happened years ago to a friend of mine who was rather tall, and we were at a conference in, in Orlando, Florida, walking along their, their boardwalk, and, and they had their typical afternoon thunderstorm come up. I actually wasn't with them at the time, but he had his hand on the the railing, and being the tallest thing there, guess where the lightning went? Um, it, it freaked everybody out, needless to say. Everybody went scrambling, and poor Bruce was standing there like, uh, what just happened? And, you know, he actually had quite a significant burn on his foot, and he was pretty goofy, goofy for the next few days. I was kind of concerned about him. Uh, Jamie, what do you know about, you know, lightning injuries? Well, I've never heard of someone being struck goofy, but I think <laughs> I think goofy is better than um, the alternative, which, you know, I mean, the electrocution injuries from um, lightning strikes are pretty severe, can be pretty severe injuries and cause severe and significant burns. All throughout the body is the, whatever the track the the, um, the lightning strike takes from top to bottom can be a pretty significant burn injury internally. So um, he's a pretty lucky guy. Actually, yes, because it, it went right to his foot and rather than through him. So, yeah, and that but what I meant by struck goofy was he, he just wasn't himself for a few days. So I don't blame was, him. but i mean you know you ask them a question you kind of okay um that kind of goofy that's what i was talking about but i'll I'll always remember that but he didn't didn't even tell us about that burn on his foot for a couple days it's like well you know we would have taken him to the er had we known that anyway um i'd just like to point out if you have been struck by lightning or nearly struck by lightning you should get checked out at your local emergency department. Um, you could have electrical abnormalities, cardiac arrhythmias. There's lots of things that could be going on internally that you aren't aware of immediately from a near strike. Um, so it's something to be aware of. Really good point. Uh, worst case scenario, of course, if somebody goes into arrest, but if, if care is given immediately, they can be brought back. But hopefully that won't happen but yet if you get a, a, a serious enough strike it can hit the ground and take out a whole bunch of people and that's the kind of the scariest thing like golfers who don't seem to want to uh <laughs> get off the golf course and yes you can give cpr to people who have been struck because it's not as though they have bad hearts that just failed it's just they're 
their hearts were shocked into a dysrhythmia. So you can probably get them back if you act very quickly, right, Becky? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think there, you know, can be like a misnomer that if you, you know, were to, to give someone CPR right after they've been struck, that you might also be struck, but that's not true. The electricity has already passed through them and into the ground at that point. Um, and like you said, if you do provide that medical assistance right away, you, I think the success rate of bringing people back is pretty high um, if they have immediate intervention. That's a really good point. But here's another kind of related scenario. So, Jamie, you're driving down the road and you see this person hit a high-pressure hydrant and the water's going everywhere and the person is in the car screaming, I'm drowning. What do you do besides call 911? Well, I mean, try to get him out of the car if you can. I mean, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to. That's, that's an interesting scenario that I'd have to sit, assess in the moment. Well, what is one of the important things you might want to assess anyone? I have no idea where you're going with this. <laughs> oh, Did, if there's any live wires down? The- there you go. Oh, well, yeah, I didn't you didn't say you struck a pole. I I thought it just hit the tele, hit the fire. <laughs> well, I didn't want to give away too much. Well, yeah. But, you know, I that actually happened. Yeah, scene safety is is always the top of the list. Yeah. So that, that was kind of the point. But I remember having one like that, exactly like that, it, and there was quite a pool that formed around this vehicle, and we're all standing there going, uh, no, <laughs> we can't go in there. And the firefighters are just kind of in a circle going, well, i got to wait till they turn the power off. The patient wasn't too happy. Um, other things that can happen, you know, after a flood or even during a flood is not just the water itself, but a lot of floating debris that can wreak havoc, including houses. Um, and the other thing, too, that I saw on this Virginia story was somebody got bit by a snake. Um, <laughs> Funny yeah. you mentioned that. So I was, <laughs> when we started this episode, I had a... Um, ready.gov slash floods pulled up to, you know, look over some flood safety, safety things. And I sent Dan this bullet, um, one of the key points here. And it was like, be aware that snakes and other animals may be in your house. And I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm not a snake person. Snakes and me are not friends. I do not like them. They don't have legs. They freak me out. And like the thought of a snake being in my house after a flood is horrifying. Um, but that's definitely, you know, a risk, both indoors and outdoors. You know, if your home has has had water come into it, you can have all sorts of things get in there. Um, you know, and also the like we talked about earlier, the there could be the potential for for live electrical wires in in flood waters that can make that water charged. Um, Jamie. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's something to keep in mind, really, with any natural disaster that's widespread is that um, the, the local flora and um, fauna will be disrupted. That means that, you know, any that the animals that are usually in the forest will may not be in the forest anymore um, and may be spread around communities they wouldn't ordinarily be found in. Um, and that mean that's snakes, that's other sorts of wild animals that, that might be harmful and wouldn't ordinarily seek out human contact but have been moved you know forcefully relocated from their home 
uh, in the forest or in wherever the wild they live, and um, that can cause issues. So um, it could be anything, really, and you just have to be aware that there's more of a chance of having an encounter immediately after something like that. Well, that that brings up an interesting point. My very first deployment was with Red Cross down in the bayou of Louisiana, and we had a, a shelter in the, in a high school cafeteria where we were, you know, sheltering people and taking care of them and whatnot and so forth. And, and it got to a point where there weren't that many people left. And then all of a sudden, we got this second wave of people, even though the floodwaters were going down. And this one guy came in and said, you know, because, you know, people worry about their stuff. They don't want to leave their home and have, have it looted while they're gone. And he said, but when I saw three or four pit vipers in my kid's bedroom, I knew it was time to leave. And apparently that was the experience for a lot of people. It's like, yeah. And there, there, there are some really nasty snakes down there. Sorry, Becky. I'm probably putting the fear of snakes into her here. So <clears throat> what about uh, driving through water, Dan? Is that a good idea? If it's never, never a good idea. <laughs> um, the, as the saying goes, turn around, don't drown. Um, as, as a good uh, slogan to remind yourself, if you see water and you can't see the road, don't drive through it because you don't know how deep the water is. And it only takes a couple of like several inches of water that that's moving to wash away your car. And you, especially at night, you don't know if the water is moving. You don't know how deep the water is. And I think just to, or as Becky just said, the road could be gone. Yes, correct. The road might not be there either. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons. In fact, uh, an infinite number of reasons to not drive through water where you cannot see the road. Uh, it's a very, very bad idea. And I think just a quick little uh, thing to think about, uh, th there was the major flooding in the New York City, Philadelphia area last September from the uh, moisture from Ida that had come through the region where there were unfortunately several fatalities from that uh, event. And there were a lot of people who drove through waters that night because they didn't even know what flash flooding was because they had never experienced it before because it's not as common in the Northeast as it is in other places. Um, so it's 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 a good thing to remind yourself that in many cases, you may experience something that you've never experienced before. Um, so try to think about what that might be ahead of time to prepare. Good point. And, and Jamie made the comment, the road may be undermined, too. Under the water, that's a scary thing. It's like, why would you want to go out in it anyway? I don't know. I don't think I would. But... A lot of things about, well, while we're talking about water, <laughs> um, none of us are really in hurricane country, but of course, you know, talking about Louisiana, they, they get hit every year. Um, do people, are do people, I wonder if people are still not taking that seriously. You think after Katrina, when so many people stayed, ah, oh, we've had hurricanes before, but the last few years we've had so many bad ones. You'd think they would rethink that or move to Kansas. What do you think, Jamie? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's uh, and people have short memories. It, it is just you see it all the time. Um, people will think, well, it won't be that bad again. Um, they just rationalize their way out of being inconvenienced and. Um, it's it's incumbent upon emergency responders. It's incumbent upon people like weather professionals 
um, and and messaging um, people in the news and stuff to be very careful in how we alert people and when we alert people so that we can make sure they're getting the most accurate and up-to-date information about the situation that's coming their way and and impress upon them the danger and risks that face them. Um, but we see it all the time. I mean, there wouldn't be any need for post-hurricane USAR action if it wasn't for the fact that so many people opt to stay in their homes when evacuation orders have been given. Um, and, and so uh, we, we see it time and again. Um, people say, well, I've ridden out the storm before, but um, and I, Dan can probably speak to this as well, or Becky, um, the, you know, every storm is different. One category storm, category one storm is not the same as the last category one storm um, and can indeed be severe in its own way compared to a category two or three storm. So I think that that's important to keep in mind. Would you guys like to chime in on that? I mean, you're 100 percent correct. Another great example of the of this was um, Hurricane Irene took place uh, in 2011 and then Sandy was in 2012. And it was it was slightly different areas, but a lot of people, um, particularly along the Jersey Shore, chose not to evacuate during Sandy because they had gone through Irene, and Irene was, you know, fairly minor in comparison. And it was just a completely different storm. You know, I, I don't remember what Irene was at, at landfall. It was a Cat 1, and obviously Sandy was that weird, like, Frankenstorm had been, quote, downgraded, which is a term we hate to use. Um, but Sandy had the right timing of of pushing all of this water in. It had high tide, and obviously the flooding ended up being immensely worse in many many locations, despite you know the difference in in category. And so you really can't focus on that. You can't focus on comparing storms. You need to you know take in the storm and all the the hazards that the meteorologists are talking about for your particular area and for that particular storm um, in order to appropriately assess your your level of risk um, and then make a decision accordingly. Dan? Yeah, I think just to add one more thing to that is what Jamie was saying about the categories of storms, right? The It's important to note that the categories of storms, that's based on the Saffir-Simpson scale, um, and that was developed many years ago, and it's a wind-only scale. So it doesn't take into account storm surge or how much rain will fall from the storm uh, so it's 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 the wind speed only, um, like and the maximum wind speed um, of the storm. So it's really important if you may be um, impacted by a tropical storm or a hurricane to really look into the details in your area of the, what the impacts are, um, so that you can understand whether it's going to be storm surge or freshwater flooding from heavy rainfall or the wind. In fact, storm surge and if inland freshwater flooding is really are, are by far the most uh, deadly impacts from storms. Wind is way far down the list. Jamie, you have a question for Dan? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you were talking about, you know, it's not just about the wind speed. Um, that's an immediate thing that happens when the, you know, when the bands of the storm pass over you. But a slow-moving, low-grade tropical storm on the Saffir-Simpson scale can be much more damaging and cause much more death and destruction than a, you know, fast moving category two or three storm. Yeah. I mean, they're all just really different, right? Each, each storm is unique. A prime example of a, uh, a quote unquote 
only tropical storm. I, I, it's, it's, it's a reason we don't like to refer to the phrase, it's only a tropical storm. A lot of people say that, or it's been downgraded because, again, the impact, if it's a tropical feature, whether it be a tropical storm or a hurricane, it can still cause significant damage. The, the, the prime example is a tropical storm Allison in 2001 that dumped 40 inches of rain in the Houston area and caused just catastrophic flooding. Um, it was a slow-moving tropical storm that just dumped rain over the Houston area for many days. Um, Harvey in 2017 was was similar again with tons of flooding with 50 inches of rain in Houston. That was a hurricane, um, but again, by the time it was producing that heavy rain, it was really only a tropical storm. So um, the category is not it's it's something to keep in mind, but the category is not the most important thing. It's the impacts where you are. Yeah, that reminds me, Dan, we skipped over it, but you were going to mention the heat issue in Europe. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, the heat in Europe is nothing to joke around about. I mean, I think, you know, in the U.S., there's parts of the country that really get a lot of heat every year. Um, like we've had, uh, there's, over, there's, there's been over 20 days so far of 100-degree weather in Dallas, for instance, uh, we have a lot of air conditioning, you know, in the United States. As you headed to parts of Europe, uh, they don't have a lot of air conditioning because they don't get a lot of heat consistently, and a lot of the buildings are older, so they're not a as able to easily um, air condition them. So the heat that's going to – basically, the rest of the week, it's going to build across uh, Western Europe, Spain, Portugal, France, and then build into parts of Germany and, the, and um, the United Kingdom, and then into parts of Central Europe like Italy and further east – um, just a couple of interesting statistics here, and then we can talk about the preparation and, and impacts. Um, over the last 25 years in Europe, there's only been three long-duration heat waves. Uh, in 2003, which was 32 days long, in 2006, 35 days long, and in 2021, there was one that was 21 days long. The, the 2003 and the 2006 heat waves, um, it's estimated that there were over 30,000 direct and indirect deaths from the 2003 Whoa. heat wave. Um, so it's, 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 it's the longer, like heat kills most people, like, heat, heat kills the most people every year. It's not talked about because it's not as flashy as a lot of the other, uh, weather impacts, but because of the, the stress to the body that heat, uh, provides, especially when you're, when people are not used to it. And then also when the nighttime temperatures are not as cool, you, you're not able to have the relief at night. So there's some serious weather coming up in a lot of Europe here over the next, what it looks to be at least two weeks where the temperatures are going to run. 10, 20 degrees Fahrenheit above normal and highs will be in the 90s. And there are probably even some hundreds in part of uh, Spain and Portugal, which is very uncommon. Um, like in, in London, the normal high temperatures in this, like, I think low 70s this time of year. And there's highs in the uh, mid to upper 90s Fahrenheit. So uh, a very serious situation for Europe and a prolonged heat wave is likely. Well, and of course, we still have a lot of summer to go here, so... I'm sure we'll get a few more, too. You know, uh, kind of a last thought on, on storms. It concerns me that, especially at night, because one of you grew up, guys brought up something about, it, you know, night and not being able to see. Um, it, it's scary that people might try to evacuate at night and not have any idea what they're, they're, they're really driving into the storm, especially in the case of a tornado when you can't see it or it's rain wrapped or something like that. In some cases, maybe it's not the best idea to try to escape when, once the storm's down on top of you, Becky. Yeah, I mean, nighttime severe weather is, I think, a whole different beast in and of its own. Um, it's certainly not something that any sane person would really recommend doing as far as chasing. 
Um, but that's why, you know, just for the average person, it's recommended that if, you know, there's going to be severe weather overnight, you go to bed with multiple ways to receive warnings. You leave your phone alerts on, you have an app on your phone that's going to alert you, whether it's, you know, the AccuWeather app or another weather app. You have the wireless emergency alert set to wake you up. Or you have a NOAA weather radio um, that you know for sure will wake you out of a deep sleep should a tornado warning be issued and you can get to a safe place in a shelter, you know, during a time where you're obviously not going to be as aware of your surroundings because you're likely asleep. Um, but nocturnal severe weather is honestly every meteorologist's nightmare. <laughs> it's not something we ever like to see. And I think it's uh. indicative that we pay extra attention to the messaging and at that time when you're if you're listening to um, what emergency management is saying, you know, when we have a hurricane and you can see it coming, um, obviously there's there's times where you can say evacuate and and get out ahead of the storm. But on those fast moving storms, those ones that spin up quickly and you know you get tornado watches across a broad front where you just don't know where the tornado is going to hit. Those situations, it's probably always better to, to be prepared and to shelter in place and not try to outrun the storm itself. Um, just get to cover in, in interior rooms and things like that as best you can. Exactly. Uh, last question. Jamie, now that it's summer, what are you putting in your car kit? Um, I always keep um, uh, like a half a case of water in the back of the car. Just I, and that's year round, but especially this time of year. I mean, I, I'm I live in a place that's that's rural, but not so rural that I'm not within a mile or two of some place that I can get <laughs> get something to drink if I need to, um, whether it's a home or something um, or or a business. Um, but I do keep that with me in case I get stranded for an extended period of time, just about every all all year round. Um, you know, it, it's. If I was going on a if I go on a trip somewhere and I'm going to be driving for a long distance, I always keep a couple of um, protein bars and stuff with me um, for the people that myself and the people that are in the vehicle, um, you know. And then I have first aid kit and, and um, general um, you know stuff I carry with me everywhere where where I go. It's you know I've got my um, tactical tourniquet and things like that with me. Good plan. What about the Depodwins? And don't tell me you don't have one. <laughs> we have, well, we have, um, let's say, emergency and first aid kits in both of our cars. Uh, we always keep a blanket in each car. We don't keep water. We should. We should definitely keep water, um, especially if we're going on, on long drives. I think we always worry about, like, the plastic or something getting, like, the chemicals. So you just have to remember to replace it. Um and then we have, you know, obviously all the, the tools needed to, to change a tire because we've had to do that a few times. What else do we have in each of our cars, Dan, besides the, the first aid and emergency kit? That's a good question. Uh, I think you covered <laughs> most of what we got there. We've also talked about, like, places to meet should we have a situation where we've got to, you know, meet somewhere because we don't have access to cell phones, whatever it might be. Uh, we have some other things we got to do. <laughs> to prepare for certain because we have a place like a safe place to be in our house during severe weather. Um, so we've done those types of things. Well, I'm glad you have a kit because we'd have to throw you off the podcast if you didn't. So that <laughs> I was also a like for some reason, always have my hiking boots in my car. I, in case like the need to hike ever just springs up. So having a pair of sturdy shoes in your vehicle is also never a bad idea. That's a very good idea. 
And I think everything that was mentioned, you guys put water in your kits and, and a few protein bars, and Jamie, you need some boots. So there you go. By the way, and, and speaking of communications, it's, it's usually better to try to text people instead of call because you're more likely to get through, just FYI. All right, Jamie. Well, we went through mostly water stuff, but that was good stuff. That was a good conversation. Huh? Well, just general preparedness and, and just trying to keep things moving um, as far as what people need to have with them and some awareness issues. And and for those of us that are listening that are responders, um, you know, this is a good opportunity for you to kind of change the messaging on your services website or social media pages. Um, you know, it's an opportunity for a discussion with your community about um, preparedness options that they have for their homes, for their vehicles, for themselves at the workplace, wherever the case may be. Um, so keep that all in mind. Um, I do want to thank Dr. Joe and Paragon Medical Education Group for their continued support of the podcast and everything that uh, he and the rest of the gang there do to help us keep the lights on here and bring you an episode here every week. Um, check them out at paragonmedicalgroup.com. There are links on our website at disasterpodcast.com, and you can always catch up with Joe on our Facebook group as well. So definitely do that. Um, Becky, where can folks find you? Folks can find me over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Dan, how about you? Find me on Twitter at WX Depot, D-E-P-O, and in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group on Facebook. On Facebook, obviously, it's a Facebook group. I just repeated myself. <laughs> it's getting late. Yes, most Facebook groups are on Facebook. And Sam? <laughs> sure are. Are you on the I'm Facebook on the, group on Facebook? I'm in the Facebook group, Jamie, on Facebook just in case you didn't know that. And yes, all those social media places under Sam Bradley are Sam Bradley 11. What about the pod medic? And that's it. The pod medic on most social media channels. So definitely friend or follow me there and uh, wherever you find me. And uh, of course, always look us up over at disasterpodcast.com. And don't forget on every episode page on the disaster podcast website, there are links right below the audio player to subscribe to the show on your favorite mobile device, iOS or Android. Uh, there are links right there that you just click on, follow the instructions. They're simple and easy. And within a few clicks, you have subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast app. So definitely take advantage of that. Um, Sam, great episode. Um, I know we pulled a lot of stuff together to get some general information out today, but it's, it's always good to revisit some of these topics on a regular basis. You bet. And I think Becky put it best when she said, you know, make sure you have the ability to get alarms and, and information, especially at night when you're not paying much attention to the phone, because um, that's when things might get dicey. So, you know, listen to the alerts, listen to the messages coming across from the meteorologists and, and be wise in your decisions. Be prepared. <laughs> 